Today on Blue 58, the Packers have added a new tight end. Is he just another camp body or evidence of a roster construction trend? Then a few hypotheticals that could be real problems for the Packers in 2019. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here yet again. It's been a busy offseason for the Packers, and that continues. We are past mandatory minicamp, just waiting for training camp to arrive, but uh, Brian Gutekunst is keeping busy. He has claimed tight end Michael Roberts off of waivers. What an interesting story this is. Six foot five, 265 pound Mr. Roberts, a fourth round pick for the Detroit Lions in 2017, and he's been, well, not super exciting in Detroit. 13 catches, 130 yards, three TDs in the two years since he was drafted. And the Lions, well, they'd seen about enough and tried to trade him to the Patriots this week, but that trade fell through due to a failed physical. So the Lions said, nah, you know what? We'll just release him anyway. And now he's in Green Bay, claimed on waivers by the Packers. I think you can see the thinking here. The Packers probably are looking at him as more of a blocking tight end, which is more or less what Matt LaFleur kind of wants in broad strokes for his offense. He doesn't typically rely on the more like move tight end types, the the glorified receivers, the Jimmy Grahams of the world. You know what I'm talking about. And broadly speaking, Michael Roberts looks like that kind of player. He looks like the more big, bulky, blocking tight end type. Again, 6'5", 265 pounds. He is not very fast or explosive at all. He ran a 4.86 in the 40 and just a, had just a 30-inch vertical and 110-inch broad jump, 19th and 21st percentiles, according to MockDraftable.com, in both of those measures. That 4.8640, just one one-hundredth of a second faster than the fleet-footed Richard Rodgers. So basically think in the mold of a Richard Rodgers, but hopefully a little bit better as a blocker. But that blocking is the big question. We're not really sure if he's a good blocker or not. Opinions differ. With that height-weight combination, you're thinking, okay, probably a guy who's going to make his living blocking, and Pro Football Focus says based on their scouting and their metrics, he is. Here's what they said in his scouting report coming out of college for the 2017 draft. Quote, high effort run blocker, fifth highest average run blocking grade per snap over the last three years in the 2017 tight end draft class. Okay, that's the good. The bad, well, there's a couple voices on that side, too. For instance, one Matt Miller of Bleacher Report, quote, as a blocker, there's not much to see despite his size, end quote. Lance Zerline of NFL.com expands on those thoughts a little bit. Here we go, quote, angles up to linebackers as a blocker will need work, overshoots targets and allows them to make plays underneath his block, needs blocks to be right in front of him. Too many misses in space, end quote. He continues later, quote, Robert's tape shows inconsistent effort from a blocking standpoint, but it also shows the strength and ability to handle those chores on the next level, end quote. So between those two groups of quotes, the one by Pro Football Focus and the others by Miller and Zerline, you've got pretty two diametrically opposed positions. Pro Football Focus says, yep, he's been a consistently good blocker. Miller and Zerline say, nope, he's been consistently bad. And Zerline even goes so far to say is, it's not even clear if he even wants to be a good blocker. His effort isn't necessarily that good. I think it's probably somewhere in between. I think most college 
football players are not typically very good blockers when they first come out, especially tight ends. There's a lot more physical development that comes with that transition to the NFL than I think people are willing to admit. A lot of times you want that ready-made player, just, you know, take off the plastic wrap and boom, you've got an NFL caliber tight end. But there is some seasoning involved here. And maybe that's what's happening with Roberts. Maybe he was good enough to be good at the college level, and that's why his run grades were so high with pro football focus. But the scouts, Miller and Zerline, who are projecting him at the next level, don't think that there was enough there. Either way, the Lions didn't think there was enough there to hang on to him. The Packers think it's worth a look. A couple interesting notes about about Roberts. He was insanely productive his last year at Toledo. He had 45 catches for 533 yards and 16 touchdowns. No slouch there. Over the course of his career, 80% of his catches went for at least a first down. Not bad either. I think the most interesting thing about him, though, and this is probably typical from one of those bottom-of-the-roster guys, is the size of his hands. He's got, according to the NFL's admittedly a little bit sketchy hand measurement system, 11 and a half inch hands. That is the biggest among the people we have measurements for, among the tight ends on the Packers roster, by about an inch. Jimmy Graham's only measured 10 and 5 eighths inches. 11 and a half inches is absolutely enormous. I'm six foot five, so about the same size as my, same size as Michael Roberts, height wise at least. My hands are about nine and a quarter inches, maybe nine and a half if I really stretch. And I know some of this does play, you know, there is hand flexibility and stuff like that that plays into the measurements that the NFL uses here. But still, an absolutely massive dude. Just one of the many reasons that I am outside of the NFL, podcasting about it, and Michael Roberts, fringe roster player though he may be, is still in the NFL. I wonder if Michael Roberts is an example of a clustered acquisition. What do I mean by that? What is a clustered acquisition? Well, let's back up a little bit. There is some research out there that suggests the best way for a team to quote-unquote fix a position or to get a good, capable player at a position is just to throw as many assets at it as they possibly can. Usually about three draft picks. Three is a significant number because it dovetails right with a few of the Packers' draft strategies, both in the late Ron Wolf era, the early Ron Wolf era, the late Ted Thompson era, and now the early Brian Gutekunst era. Ron Wolf famously said that a 300 hitter is considered, you know, Hall of Fame good, and if you're a 300 drafter, you're really good. Hitting one out of three picks uh, is, is excellent in the NFL. If you can get a solid player every third time you pick, you're doing pretty, pretty well. But that plays into the clustering idea, I think, too. Because if your goal in drafting players is to get a good pick, and it takes roughly three picks out of position before you get a good one, that is right in line with that sort of one out of three mentality. A little bit lower, or a little bit higher, excuse me, than 300. But, you know, in the same ballpark. The Packers have employed this idea several times over their relatively recent history. In 2018, the Packers drafted three wide receivers, and it looks like they've got at least one, perhaps two, good ones. They took Jamon Moore in the fourth round, Marquez Valdez-Scantling in the fifth, and Equinemius St. Brown in the sixth. In 2017, they took running backs three at a time. 
Jamal Williams in the fourth, Aaron Jones in the fifth, and Devontae Mays, remember him, in the seventh round. In 2014, it was wide receivers again. Devontae Adams in the second round, Jared Aberderis in the fifth, and Jeff Janis in the seventh. Now, obviously, all three of those are kind of dependent on the board. There have to be good players around for you to take three of them, and that's true. But in each of these cases, they were also trying to beef up positions where they maybe were declining just a little bit. Going back further in Packers history, you can see Ron Wolf doing this same strategy. In 2000, he took three wide receivers, Anthony Lucas in the fourth round, Joey Jameson in the fifth, and then Charles Lee in the seventh. Lee ends up being the only player of the three who's who's actually any good at all. He had a relatively long career, 44 career games, only two years in Green Bay. Lucas and Jamison, though, didn't play at all. So there you've got your one out of three hit rate. In 1999, you've probably got the most famous example of clustering draft picks. Antoine Edwards, Fred Vinson, and Mike McKenzie are picks one, two, and three for, my, uh, for the Packers that year. Obviously, in response to Randy Moss, and they needed some help in the secondary, regardless of who they were facing on the other side. Uh, But they try the three draft picks. And again, one out of three really actually works out at all. What does any of this have to do with Michael Roberts? Well, the Packers have not really spent a lot of draft picks on tight ends, just the one in relatively recent history. But since late last season, the Packers have actually spent a lot of low-end resources on tight ends, way more than three, in fact. They signed Evan Bayless late in the season, first to the practice squad and then to the active roster after the season was em- over. They just wanted to promote him or have the futures contract. I forget the exact terminology, but they decided to keep him around. Then they drafted Jay Sternberger. They signed Dennis Coppenhaver out of Duke as a undrafted free agent. He has since moved on. Uh, They signed Pharaoh McKeever, and now they've added Michael Roberts. That's five players at one position. I don't know if the Packers are trying to fix this position per se, but it does seem like they are trying to overcome shortcomings at a position with some volume. They're throwing a lot of resources at tight ends to try to figure out if they can get one that works. And I think that's an interesting approach. If nothing else, they'll have a lot of choices and they've got a lot of different body types from which to choose. That was one of my consistent criticisms of the Packers throughout this offseason, thinking about them potentially acquiring a wide receiver, either in the draft or otherwise. They've just got a lot of guys who do pretty much the exact same thing. And I think adding some guys who can do some different things would be a really great strategy. That seems to be at the very least what they're doing with tight ends. And reading into it a little further, they could be just throwing a bunch of resources at this, hoping they either find one that sticks that can be decent short term or find a guy with some actual upside that could be a long-term solution there. Let's switch gears really hard and talk about some hypothetical stuff. I've been thinking over the last couple days about best case and worst case scenarios, and that may be something we do as a podcast topic in the relatively near future. But one of the things that I was trying to think of is the worst thing that could happen to the Packers in 2019. And that's, that's pretty obvious, right? We have seen basically the worst thing that could happen to the Packers in each of the last two seasons. Aaron Rodgers has a significant injury. But we got to go farther than that. we got to think about what is the worst single thing that could happen to the Packers. And I was having a hard time coming up with one specific answer. 
a lot of it can go around injuries or, or things like that. But I think as a conclusion, I had decided that maybe it's not one single thing that's going to sink the Packers. Maybe it's a bunch of things all happening at once. Maybe it's a bunch of littler things all happening at relatively similar times. I talked about this analogy early in the offseason or shortly after the Packers season ended. I think it was Jim Ozarski that, that used the example, and I could be misquoting him or I could be quoting somebody entirely different, but he talked about how when an airplane crashes, or the analogy is that the thing that crashes an airplane more often than not is just one is not one big thing going wrong. It's it's very rarely an airplane just falling out of the sky because all of the engines shut off at once. That's obviously one really bad thing, right? But usually what it is, is it's a series of cascading smaller failures that happen all at once. There's a great episode of the, the podcast, 99% Invisible, that talks about the importance of design. Well, the, that's what the entire show is about. But one of the things that they talked about um, was a potential nuclear disaster that happened in the United States. We've got nuclear missile silos kind of clustered towards the middle of the country. And there was a giant explosion at one once. And I won't belabor the entire story for you, but the real problem there was not that one enormous thing went wrong, though that was the result at the end. The problem was a bunch of smaller things built on top of each other and there wasn't any way to shut off the problem anywhere in the middle and so things kind of spiraled out of control so thinking about things like that i started to think about the 2019 packers roster and where are areas on the packers roster that could cause this thing to spiral and what would be the inciting incident that would start that spiral so here's a few of those hypotheticals, four of them, in fact, that I think could cause something of a spiral for the Packers here. And in the course of this discussion, I think we have to wonder whether these are problems unique to the Packers or problems that maybe every NFL team might deal with. Because there's been, I think this offseason more than others, this focus on problems the Packers have as though they are entirely unique to the Packers. And talking about them as though they're the worst thing in the world right now, even though there's no way of knowing how they're going to turn out. I'm thinking of two articles by Tom Silverstein in particular, the one about the management structure and the one recently about Aaron Rodgers and how he'll take to the offense. You just don't know the answer to these. And we're not going to know the answer to these hypotheticals either. But should they go wrong, they could be big problems for the Packers. First hypothetical, first question here that... I think could be a big problem for the Packers is what if Kevin King can't produce again? The emphasis there is on again, because heading into his third season, Kevin King has only played in 15 of a possible 32 regular season games. And at times when he's been healthy, he's been pretty good. But the problem is he hasn't been healthy that often. In fact, uh, 15 out of 32 means that more often than not, he hasn't been healthy and even in those 15 games, you have to wonder how many of them is he at or near 100%. What if it's only eight to nine games again? What does that do to the Packers cornerback group? I think that could hypothetically be a really, really big problem. 
Jair Alexander is the closest thing to a real known commodity the Packers have in their cornerback group. And I think other than him, that's about it. Because you've got Alexander, who heading into his second year could be a, a bit of an unknown himself. I mean, he can regress. But other than Jair Alexander, you've got at the top end of the roster, Kevin King, the mysterious one that we're talking about here, Tremont Williams, who's 300 years old, uh, Josh Jackson, whose 2018 season was rough, to say the least, Tony Brown, a year away from being an undrafted free agent, and then you're down to your fifth or sixth cornerback at that point already. If Kevin King can't produce, if he's hurt again, or just turns out to not be any good, suddenly you're leaning pretty heavily on Tremont Williams and Tony Brown and Josh Jackson. That's not ideal, and it could cause a need for shuffling elsewhere in the secondary that could be a big problem for the Packers this year. That's something that I would be pretty concerned about if I was Mike Pettin, and the health of my secondary would be something that would keep me up at night. At night. Building on that, what happens if one of the Packers' safety groups or safeties gets hurt? Safety has been kind of disproportionately paid attention to this offseason in Green Bay, even outside of the drafting of a player in the first round at that position. We've talked a lot about Josh Josh Jones. We've talked about whether Josh Jackson might fit better at safety. We've talked about Bashad Breland and how he played into the safety picture, which turned out to be not at all because he is off to greener pastures elsewhere. But just keeping it in the here and now, if one of these starting safeties were to get hurt, suddenly you're leaning on Josh Jones again or Tremont Williams at safety. This is a thin safety group yet again, and that could be a big problem for the Packers. And I think even more than cornerback, it has a potential to cause cascading issues on the defense. Because, say, Darnell Savage gets hurt, and you've got to move Tremont Williams to safety again, suddenly, once again, you've weakened two positions. Then you have to ask questions at safety and at corner. And it starts to be really annoying and a real headache if you're trying to figure out how you put together a game plan for your secondary. Now, that's the bad situation here. But let's take a second and think about this. Sure, it looks like the Packers have a pretty thin defensive back group. But what does depth actually mean in the secondary? I don't have an answer to this. Let's just say that right up front. But I think... This is a a topic that we as fans can get obsessed about for the wrong reasons. The idea that teams got to have a certain amount of depth. Or maybe, maybe let me put it this way, maybe that a certain amount of depth is achievable. I think you and I, as outsiders, would probably look at the roster and say, okay, we need a solid starting lineup. We need two good corners, two good safeties, and at least one or two good backups, close to starting caliber backups behind them. But that's a lot of talent at one or two position groups. I don't know if it's even possible to have depth in those position groups to the extent that you wouldn't miss a beat if you missed one of your starting corners. I don't think there's a lot of teams out there that are really going to be able to weather losses there to the extent that we talk about when we really worry about depth. Now, maybe 
it says something about the weakness of your starting group if there's going to be that much of a drop off or if that you if they're that indispensable maybe they're just that good or maybe they're just that bad that there's not that much of a drop off and everybody in your secondary is just bad but i don't know if it's possible to really achieve that much depth related to that i think we've got to ask the same the same question or a similar question on the offensive line what if billy turner isn't the answer at guard or tackle for the Packers. Most observers, most people who write about these kind of things, seem to think that the Packers overpaid for Billy Turner. I'm still not quite comfortable going that far. They seem to pay a lot for Billy Turner, but I think what is clear is they paid him starter money. Whether or not they overpaid is not necessarily the point, They paid him, at least in the short term, like a guy who should be starting in the short term. But what if Billy Turner can't do it? What if things aren't working at guard? Brian Bulaga gets hurt, they bump him out to right tackle, and he can't get it done there either. Again, you have a situation where you have cascading problems. At tackle... Your top backup, other than Billy Turner, if they think of him as a backup tackle, is Jason Spriggs. And you can throw Justin McRae out there, Alex Light maybe, but not exactly a murderer's row of quality offensive line depth. At guard, another position you'd have to fill if you move him out of that slot or to fill in at tackle or if he just isn't good at guard. You've got Elton Jenkins, the rookie, and Cole Madison, the quasi-rookie. Again, just not super great. And you got Lucas Patrick and a couple other guys in there who have not really lit the lit the world on fire yet so far. Adam Pankey, another name too. So it could be a problem if Billy Turner can't get it done at either of those spots. And just imagine what it would do when you've got a quarterback who's getting a little bit on the older side You've got a new coach who wants to really emphasize the run game as part of his new philosophy. What does having a weak offensive line do to those two situations? It's not good. But it occurs to me that much like in the secondary, there just may not be that much depth to go around. It might not be possible to have this work out where if you've got a guy who gets hurt or a guy who can't play, that there's just available guys out there that you can plug in who would be available, either in the draft or in free agency. I mean, where are the affordable backups that you would actually feel comfortable bringing them in in and wanting to have them around? I don't think there's just tons of them out there, and that's probably why guys like Billy Turner get big contracts. I mean, the Packers may have overpaid for him, but it's not like we don't see something like that happen every single offseason. It's really hard to fix your offensive line and fix it quickly. Teams are willing to overpay for something like that. But I am open to the possibility that offensive line depth may just not really be a thing. How many good offensive linemen can you get on one team? Six, maybe? Seven, if you're super lucky? You're probably not feeling good on any team in the league about offensive linemen number eight or nine. It's just not out there. I, I, 
think it's a problem if Billy Turner isn't the answer for the Packers, but I'm not sure what the answer would be. Finally, I think this one is is a real significant question for the Packers because they've kind of been in this sort of environment for now a couple of years. What if something were to happen to Devontae Adams? There is not a lot of veteran depth in this Packers wide receiver group. You've got Geronimo Allison, who has been effective in short bursts, but hasn't gotten really extended burn over the past couple of years and was an undrafted free agent before that. The next closest thing to veteran depth behind Geronimo Allison is probably Jake Kumaro, just because he's like 36 years old. Not really, but you know what I'm saying. He's been around for a while. He was technically, I think, a first-year player last year. He's one of those rookies who's not really a rookie, but has like practice squad eligibility, even though he's been in and out of camps for like three years. You know what I'm trying to say. He's not a young guy, but he's not super experienced. Other than that, Jamon Moore, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Equinemius St. Brown, that's fine, but you don't have a lot of guys who have any kind of real legitimate NFL experience. You've also got nobody with his skill set. And I realize that his skill set is very, very rare. That's why he's one of the best in the league at what he does. But I'm referring more to just like the idea of a receiver who wins with route running versus just pure speed or physical dominance or size, something along those lines. Devontae Adams, you know, can jump out of the gym. Nobody questions that. But speed, or at least the timed sort of speed, is not really what he wins with. He wins with precision, with route running, with knowing where he's supposed to be, with positioning, things like that. The Packers don't really have anybody other than him who does that kind of thing. That would be a real problem for the Packers if he was not available for an extended period this year. So what does all this mean? Say two or three of these eventualities happen. Say Kevin King gets banged up and at the same time, Darnell Savage is also hurt. Suddenly you're real thin in the secondary. How do you fix that? Whose job is that? Well, I think the problem there lies with the coaching staff because at this point, I'm not sure there's a personnel fix out there. Everybody who's a free agent right now is a free agent for probably a significant reason, perhaps with the notable exception of Trey Boston the available safety who everyone seems to be wondering on about a daily basis now. It's a scrawling across the internet or the places I go on the internet, uh, people wondering why he isn't signed. Everybody else out there is a pretty much known commodity. People know why they're not signed. You know what you're getting. And what you're getting is a guy who was unsigned and for good reason in the middle of June. No, this is going to be a coaching staff issue if the Packers have to deal with this sort of cascading trouble. Early on in the Mike McCarthy era, I think he was actually quite good at this. You could see him coming up with novel solutions to problems when they had to cover multiple problems at once. But this kind of circles back to the biggest question I have about a relatively inexperienced coaching staff. By and large, I think I trust Mike Pettin to figure out something creative that he could do if the Packers needed to come up with some sort of shoestring solution to a a bit of a fractured secondary or a a weak pass rush rush group. But we haven't seen, and no one has seen really, how Matt LaFleur 
or say Adam Stenovich, the offensive line coach, can deal with a situation where they have to deal with fewer resources. And I guess that's the real crux of this issue here. The way we'll find out what's happening for the Packers in 2019 is how the coaching staff handles adversity. That'll be where the rubber meets the road for this new, relatively inexperienced coaching staff. And that'll be the really interesting thing to see in 2019. Because things are going to go wrong. They always do for every team in the league. Sometimes you just wait until too many things pile up for your team, and that's when your season kind of peters out. That happens to a lot of people every year, and that's, I think, the real reason that teams bow out of the playoffs or don't make the playoffs at all is just too many bad things added up for them. The last couple years, in part because the big bad thing happened early on, too many things added up for the Packers. Things spiraled out of control. Just look at last year. Even though Aaron Rodgers was dealing with a pretty significant leg injury, that wasn't alone what sunk the team. There were a lot of problems elsewhere. Just too simple an offense, too much of a disconnect uh, between receivers and the quarterback, uh, other issues that just kind of bogged down the entire offensive system. You had a defense that got real beat up in the secondary, uh, didn't have a lot of pass rush help, and guys got hurt there too. Nick Perry dealt with an injury for most of the season. It was an issue. Those cascading little issues. And the Packers didn't have the juice on the coaching staff anymore to deal with those things. We'll see how this new coaching staff deals with adversity. And that's one of the things I'm most excited to watch in 2019. So I've got for you on this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. I do appreciate it. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, to leave us a review wherever you listen, and to rate us as well. That does help more people find the show. If you'd like to take your support to the next level, go to patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Donate $1 per month. That's enough to offset our hosting costs, and it helps you just show that you support the show, and we appreciate that a lot, too. And don't forget to check out our selection of t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. If you've got an idea for the show or just want to say hi, reach out to us via our contact page at thepowersweep.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter or type thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com into the address bar of the email provider of your choice, and we will get your email message. Every bit of feedback, every question you ask helps us make this entire operation better and helps us further our mission of helping everybody become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.